Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. I'm Michael Fragan. We're talking politics here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, JM in the AM.org. And welcome back to a wonderful Thursday evening here on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, New York City, the media capital of the world, right now also functioning as a political. I hesitate to say uh, circus, but certainly an entertaining political environment. we got all kinds of political characters going on right now, and chiefly among them, uh, one city councilwoman, actually not even a city councilwoman yet, soon to be a city councilwoman, uh, representing Brooklyn, who uh, seems to be making a name for herself way before getting into office, and I'm not sure if that's the way she wanted things to go. But we're going to talk more about her and focus a little more on city politics a, a little bit later. And I want to first, first and foremost, most importantly, mention our sponsor, Beckerman Public Relations, Beckerman Public Affairs, BeckermanPR.com, building market leadership and reputation through strategic, strategic communications. If you want to tell your story, tell it with Beckerman. We have a great show coming up. We're going to discuss Albany. We're going to discuss the city. We're going to discuss Bill de Blasio coming out with his first picks for the new administration, the city council speakers race, and we're also going to pivot a little bit internationally and talk at towards the end of the show about Iran, Israel, the U.S., and things going on in D.C. So it's it's packed. We got a lot of great guests coming up, and I want to welcome our first guest, a return guest. Dave Catalfamo of Park Strategies, a 20-year veteran of New York State government, so certainly battle-tested, battle-scarred. And from 2004 to 2007, Dave was Director of Communications for former New York Governor George Pataki, and as I mentioned, he is now at Park Strategies. Dave, welcome back to Spin Class. Michael, great to talk to you. How are you doing tonight? Oh, everything's well. So you calling from Albany or you calling from the city? I'm calling from the city, actually. Oh, fantastic. Okay, good. So we can get uh, we can get an outsider's perspective on Albany. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to throw a bombshell statement out there at, at you, just to start off, make things, you know, a little light discussion. Governor Cuomo says corruption is a problem found in the legislature and not in the executive branch. That is what his Moreland Commission seems to have found out. He appointed with uh, Attorney General Eric Schneiderman a commission to investigate corruption, and they basically uh, kind of ho-hum, right? I mean, uh, how would you characterize this report that uh, that was supposed to be the report that was going to clean up the cesspool of Albany? Well, you know, I guess. Look, I, I cesspool is not the, my word. Let me just say that was that was uttered by others. I was, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I think that the governor is right from the point of view that when you look at the corruption over the recent over recent years, it's been largely focused on the on the legislative branch. So far as there have been uh, many members who have been you know wearing a wire, members wearing a wire for a couple of years, other members who have been uh, arrested. So I mean, I think his point is well taken. And and look, and, and in fairness to the governor, and it, is that. You know, the executive branch had not been a subject of his his executive branch, most specifically, had not been subject to um, the foibles of the Patterson or Spitzer administration. So, in, in fairness to, the, to Governor Cuomo, I understand his point. The reality is, though, I mean, the Moreland Commission is looking at campaign finance and as and to the effects of that uh, on the political process. And I do think that if the if that if the Moreland Commission goes on, they will inevitably have to look at uh, the, the governor's own uh, campaign financing, just as, you know, 20-plus years ago, uh, Moreland Commission, uh, and put in paneled by his father when he was governor, did the same thing uh, on the same topic. It's kind of ironic and... Deja vu all over again. Vu. Yeah, I mean, you you wouldn't think that you could make this stuff up, right? Um so I think that, you know, I think that he's in a difficult spot um, uh, so far as... Um, you know, trying to have a productive year in Albany and and get some things done and 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 not get himself further jammed up on the Moreland Commission issue. Um, uh, but again, I, I don't I don't actually take a lot of issue with his emphasis thus far. I think that you know it, it's fair, and I think that people are tired of seeing their legislators run out and uh, handcuffs or uh, wearing wires and and whatnot. So you know, well, I would agree with that. But let's talk about the fact that. The commission issues a report. They don't name names. There's nothing bombshell. There's nothing really. I mean, is it even newsworthy? 
No, I, I don't. I think it's more of the same. I don't think it really broke any new ground. Um, and, you know, I think that his public comments seem to sort of uh, indicate um, that he doesn't appear to be very optimistic about uh, the opportunity to bring uh, campaign finance reform forward, which is something, obviously, that he's been supportive of. But, uh, you know, look, obviously there are things that can be done to, you know, make the system stronger and uh, require, dis- you know, additional disclosure or give prosecutors additional tools to make sure that, uh, you know, wrongdoing is uh, appropriately punished. And, I, and, I, and actually, I'm going to, you know, I'll say the governor's right that we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And the perfect in his, in his mind includes campaign finance, not mine, obviously. Um but uh, so I think there's things that can be done, and they can move the ball forward, and they can make you know sounder, better laws, and have a better system. Um, and and I think if that's where this goes from here, then then that's a plus, and I think everybody can win. Well, right? let's let's go to the political angle here, and we're talking to Dave Catalfamo of Park Strategies uh, here on Spin Class on the Malcolm Siegel Network, and. Let's just, on the political aspect of it, Cuomo comes in, he's, the legislature doesn't go ahead, they don't pass any meaningful reform, ethics reform, campaign finance reform and the like, always looking for. They don't pass it, he says, I'm going to call a Moreland Commission because there's so much corruption, this is going to be what's going to clean up Albany, and then the Moreland Commission itself runs into all kinds of bad press because he is controlling it, he's... Uh, influencing the staff, he's influencing the members, and then there's a dissenting report when it comes down. Did he lose control of the commission and the narrative here entirely? No, I don't. I don't think he has to. And and I think honestly, he's at a critical point. And uh, I do believe that there are measures that can be taken that, that we would all consider to be ethics reform that would improve the process. And I and I, I think that those can be done, and we can have a better process. Um, and more importantly, then allow us to move on also to you know uh, other issues of governance, which are which are equally or, or more important. So I don't. I think he's at a critical point. I think the commission's at a critical point. But I don't think, at the end of the day, uh, that it's one that it's irretrievable. I think that there's space to compromise and come up with a program uh, that will give us uh, better ethics laws and, and better laws on campaign finance, falling short of you know campaign uh, public public financing. Yeah, public campaign. financing. So uh, there's there's clearly space there. I do think if it goes further. Look, you know, Michael, you know, I mean, the governor ran on, you know, uh, making Albany a functional, um, productive place. And to a large extent, that's that's occurred, right? I mean, compared to the previous four years before he was governor. So I think the challenge for him Setting is... Setting the bar low. Yeah, well, the bar's <laughs> low, but, but, but look, he, he didn't set the bar, right? I mean, that, he's exceeding it. And, and in fairness to him, so the reality is, you know, it's, you know, he's going into an election year. That's two competing messages. The one message will be, look, I did what I said I would do. I restored order and predictability and competence to government and Albany. And, and we passed say, the budget. You know, we got things done. Right. right. We got stuff done. But then in the next breath saying, well, it's still a mess. They don't work together. Right. So, so I think. So better be- to get that done and over with in 2013. Exactly. Yep. Okay. So good that you mentioned the fact that we are going into an election year and to get a little more deeper into it. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor, looks like he's going to cruise, at least if you're looking at the polls and you're looking at what he has in his bank account, which is quite prodigious. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, mm-hmm. yes, exactly. Uh, it's not to, you know, not to be off by a couple decimal points, but yeah. you know, it's pretty, pretty impressive, uh, I would say. I think, I, I think there are few in the country that can match that type of, uh, bank account yep. out there. But, uh, on the other hand, uh, there were a number of county executive races that were lost by Democrats. We think that, and I think that there are some resources were put into them. His home county of Westchester, Rob Astorino won. Uh, the Republican came from behind, I think, and, and won in Rockland County. Ed Day. Yeah. Ed Day. Yeah. Uh, Nassau County, Tom Swazi fails to make a resurgence. And yeah. in Orange County, the Republican won, uh, which was supposed to be a, a closer race. And Orange County had been trending more 
Democratic, possibly. That was a, a possible takeover with neighboring Ulster uh, going Democratic. So there's there is there concern at all for the Cuomo camp? Not necessarily. You know, the Republicans don't have a candidate yet, but if to kind of rack up that big suburban uh, coalition win, you know, a win throughout the state and all you know demographic groups. I think, look, I think that there's two challenges for, for the Cuomo administration and for Governor Cuomo. One is that he, um, he's running a little bit against himself, regardless, because he ran up such a big number last time against Carl Palladino. Um, and, you know, despite what anybody says, I do believe he's got his eye on the next presidential race, and therefore it's very important for him to exceed his plurality from the last race. And I think under any circumstance, that's very difficult to do. So I would I think you start there with which is hurdle number one, which is how do I exceed my last race where I did extremely well. Now if somebody like Rob Astrino gets in the race, um, he's obviously going to need to raise enough resources to be competitive, um, but he's obviously a, a very credible candidate. I think would uh, probably guaranteed probably forty percent of the vote, and that makes a very you know just. Just if he runs a credible campaign, manages to raise what I would call sort of expected kind of resources, um, and, and and does a good job, uh, you, you get into an area where it's already starting to be very difficult for the governor to exceed expectations, right? And that's a big part of sort of, you know, the psychology of what's going on here. It's not just winning re-election. It's also winning in a manner that's convincing enough to show that you have uh, the chops to be uh, a national player. So... Uh, those two things are definitely going to come into play. It's going to be really fun to watch, I think, over the next couple months. Well, just to get the view from upstate about how these county executive races are viewed, because everybody in New York City and the New York City market, we only focused on the mayoral race, which, of course, was a kind of ho-hum. It really didn't mount to much of a contest. But these other races, if you're looking from an Albany perspective, they were they were particularly interesting, and they were clo- they were expected to be closer. And how does it... Is it meaningful for those? I mean, Larry Schwartz, the governor's uh, chief of staff, is used to be the deputy county executive of Westchester County. Right. Uh, it was said that he had his sights on taking out Rob Astorino, and you know, it really wasn't a close race. So, was that? Was that? Was there any type of uh, chink in the armor there of the Cuomo machine? No, I think honestly, I think it. You know, um, and uh, there's a lot of rumors about you know how much they were invested in any of these races, in particular in Westchester, given the history you described, um, which is right. Of course, I, I'm, this is just conjecture on my part. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, no, and it's been rumored, obviously. And but I, I look, I think at the end of the day, you know, we have some strong candidates. I mean, you know, Rod Astrino has been a good county executive. He's held the line on uh, taxes in Westchester County, which is obviously one of the biggest issues that residents there face. I think. You know, um, all across the state, we have Republican county executives in the majority of the counties, uh, and they're doing, by, by and large, a great job of, of running those counties. And, and they're obviously running on um, on uh, a lot of issues that uh, are sort of core Republican issues. So I think it's less about sort of um, any uh, ideological or personality matchup with the Cuomo administration. I really, I really don't think it's a test of that. Um, I think it's more a test of sort of, you know, the way that these individuals have been uh, running their counties and the excellence that they've had. And, and I do think it posits them well in the future so far as, you know, people talk about the Republican Party not having a bench. We, we do. We have a tr- tremendous group of uh, young, talented elected officials who are coming up who I do think, um, if the circumstances play out, have, you know, uh, can play in the state stage and maybe beyond. You know, so uh, it's encouraging from that point of view. Well, good. I guess that would be the... The silver lining in when we're talk because when we're talking about a potential run by the Donald for governor, and that's where Republicans are looking, uh, you know that's got to be alarming to a, a good number of people out there. And uh, I refer to the fact that uh, Donald Trump is now testing the waters potentially to run for governor in the absence of uh, a a kind of uh, premier candidate. To run, uh, to run out there. So, He's not testing the waters on anything. It's just a, another one of his stunts to have us talking about him, have you talking about him, have, you know, have the uh, pundits talking about him. He's not running for anything. Um, and I think the sooner that we all 
digest that and move by it, the better off we are. Oh, come on. You're making the show that much less fun by not, <laughs> by not addressing the issue. But we're, we're talking to Dave Catalfamo from Park Strategies here on Spin Class. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Malcolm Siegel Network, uh, sponsored by Beckerman, Beckerman Public Relations. And, uh, Let's just talk a little bit about the taxes, okay? So you talk about the fact that Republican county executives are holding the line on taxes. We have the probably the second most important politician in the state who is going to be agitating for higher taxes, and it's that is uh, Mayor-elect Bill de Blasio, and uh, quite and that's going to create quite a bit of pressure on Governor Cuomo. I imagine that the Assembly Democrats, uh, at least it seems from what was been reported this week uh, when he addressed them, that they're going to be on board. So that's going to – and you'll have a, a certainly a very far – quite far to the left city council, right. uh, no matter who the speaker is. Yep. Uh, this council will be far to the left. It, it, will that create a lot of leftward pressure on Andrew Cuomo? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you actually hit on, I think, one of the, what's going to be one of the more interesting things to watch this year, which is that, you know, Bill de Blasio is, is certainly ran as and is more, uh, they use the term progressive, I'll use the word liberal, um, uh, a leaning, uh, elected official. And as such, I think that, you know, he will, you know, a, a lot of the energy in the Democratic Party, uh, in that space will gravitate to him and to some of those issues like you talked about with, you know, higher taxes. Um, I think that's going to be really fun to watch so far as how that plays out. Obviously, I don't think the governor's got a whole lot of interest in raising taxes. Obviously, I think he's planning on cutting taxes uh, in the coming year. Um, that that said, there are ways to to meet uh, the Marilex, you know, priorities on, uh, for example, pre-K. Um, and given the fact that, uh, you know, for for uh, the last few years, the governor has held the line on spending. Um, there's going to be some more spending this year, and I think that they probably could uh, meet uh, de Blasio's need to, you know, fund pre-K a little bit. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. It's going to be really interesting to watch sort of how the progressives push and, uh, and really uh, make life difficult for Governor Cuomo as he's trying to ride into an election year where he clearly want to uh, appeal to the, you know, a broader sector at broader sector of the electorate and um that's going to be a challenge it's going to be really very interesting to watch so one thing that i noticed out there is that yours and my former boss uh governor pataki mm-hmm. uh, is on this tax commission appointed right. by andrew cuomo strangely enough yep. I, I think for a lot of listeners out there will find that quite strange that he went ahead and appointed uh his father's nemesis uh, to a tax commission, but Governor Pataki called publicly for a tax cut in the personal income tax. Uh, And uh, even before the commission has issued any report, now it seems potentially the commission's report is not going to be issued on time. Is this going to be, is this itself having appointed this commission, another commission that's going to end up not uh, delivering for the governor? Uh, you know, I, look, I think that, um, I can, I can only speak for Governor Pataki, and I know that he is committed to delivering a report, uh, to Governor Cuomo that reflects, you know, um, both the commissions and candidly his views on what's going to make the state more competitive from a tax point of view. Um, you know, he, he's, Governor Pataki was, you know, honored to be asked to serve on the commission, and, and, you know, he did have a, a, a great record as a governor of being a very, you know, holding a very consistent line on cutting taxes. Um, and so he's got some definitive ideas, like you mentioned, on the PIT and on the state taxes and business taxes. Um, there's limited revenues that can be used to sort of meet those goals. Uh, in addition to the, you know, the, uh, Governor Cuomo clearly is interested in uh, addressing property taxes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it'll be on time tomorrow. Um, you know, I hope it is. They're still working through it as we speak. Um, but, but more importantly, you know, there's a real earnest effort here to come to some consensus on a package that will, you know, that could be passed, that makes sense, and that lowers the, the business and property and personal income tax burden on New Yorkers. And so I, I think no matter what, that's a good conversation to be having. You know, I mean, we're talking about which tax to lower. Um, and while we're going to have, you know, Republicans in particular have different ideas about that than, than others, I think it's important that we're at least having that conversation. Governor Pataki's, you know, uh, on part of it and, and is obviously has his own ideas and going to push for them. Um, that said, Governor Cuomo is the governor.
and um, you know, uh, ultimately the commission, I believe, will reflect and appropriately so, you know, his priorities. I, I, and I don't, uh, as opposed to other people, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. You know, um, that's when you're governor, you get to set priorities. Um, so we're trying to work within the priorities that he's laid out and come up with a plan that hopefully uh, meets everybody's needs. But either way, um, the notion that we're talking about cutting taxes is, is a good is a good discussion for New Yorkers, right? I mean, you know, that's the sure. right direction. <laughs> sure. That, from my perspective, certainly, I think you have, uh, I guess you have on one side the, the Governor Cuomo appointed Governor Pataki calling for a cut in taxes, and on the other side you have Mayor-elect uh, de Blasio and his wing of the party uh, calling for a uh, a raising in taxes of the personal income tax on the wealthiest uh, New Yorkers, which, of course, is, you know, makes for strange bedfellows. Yeah. yeah it's fa- I mean, it's fascinating. You know, again, I, I just – my sense of it and, and that you're uh, – much more savvy, uh, you know, viewer of, the, of these things than I am. It, it seems pretty clear to me that heading into an election year, uh, that it'd be very difficult for Governor Cuomo to to be advocating for higher taxes than anybody. Well, it just goes to show you can't make all people happy all of the time. I think that's a truism out there. Certainly, from your perspective as a former or a you know commu- former communications director, I think you know that well. Yeah. No. And and you know, again, I, I think that if um, um, you know the other the other people who are running for re-election this year, the state legislature, and you know it, it, let's let's say for example that uh, Mayor like the Blasio was effective in sort of bringing the governor along to his way of thinking. Um, I just don't see the Senate Republicans or the IDC going for a tax increase. And candidly, notwithstanding you know um, uh, some what maybe some people might think where the speaker would be, I think there'd be a whole big section of his conference that have no interest in raising taxes this year. Also, so you know, I think all the way around, I think that's a tough, tough road to hoe. Tough sell in the yeah. in the election year. Yeah. Okay, we're Dave Catalfamo here from Park Strategies. And one last question: We're almost out of time for this segment. Is uh, Dave? What is Plan B for the Republicans? You mentioned Rob Astorino before, and Donald Trump, as you said, not running. You mentioned Carl Palladino, who says he might run. Uh, currently, a school board member in Erie County. Uh, what is Plan B for the Republicans, or C or D, or the like? Who is going to run for governor against Andrew Cuomo? Uh, hard to say. You know, I mean, it could be somebody that we never even met or know or whatnot. Obviously, given the cost of running elections today, um, you know, we're always looking for people who come into a situation with um, with ready-made wealth and the ability to self-fund campaigns. I mean, that's a sad reality of it today. I think actually, you know, when you when we look back, I mean, um, there's uh, uh, Governor Pataki may be the last sort of uh, a person to jump up to the office, not from a statewide office, who's not personally wealthy. I mean, um, uh, I think it's a real problem. But uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know that we can tell you can say right now. There's probably people out there thinking about it that that we don't know. Um, and to me, I'm I'm more interested in okay, you know, can we build a ticket? Can we get people to run for the attorney general, controller? Can we get can we get you know a good candidate on top who's going to execute a message? I mean, look, if if Rob didn't run Astorino, I think Ed Cox would be a very feasible candidate to carry the party line and to articulate Republican values and uh, message and and give us a top of the ticket that is. Um, uh, that's positive and moves the party forward. I really do. You know, um, is, would it be a winning formula? I don't know. I think it's hard. I think it's hard for anybody. You know, so. Um, okay. We'll, well, we'll leave it at that, and we'll uh, certainly get updates as we go along in into 2014. Dave Catalfamo, thank you for joining us once again on Spin Class. Uh, thanks for having me, Michael. Fantastic. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. This is Spin Class, and we're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Sponsored by Beckerman Public Relations, BeckermanPR.com. And we have Colin Campbell on the line from the Politicker, the ubiquitous and shameless, I think, uh, you refer, were referred to as this week for uh, shameless rumor mongering, Colin. 
Good evening, Michael. Glad to be here. Okay, thanks for coming on. And uh, you want we're going to indulge in some shameless rumor mongering, hopefully. <laughs> uh, I think that that's uh, that's what we do when we speculate with regard to new administrations. Uh, but we'll discuss, I guess, for a couple seconds, the current picks of Bill De Blasio, and some are saying that these picks are possibly a little bit to the right or to the center or whatever of where Bill de Blasio ran. I refer to Anthony Shores, a a longtime uh, uh, potentate of uh, New York City government, Uh, one of the mandarins, I guess you could uh, call him, as well as Bill Bratton, who certainly is not a huge break from uh, stop and frisk. So uh, what are people to make of these? Uh, Yeah, sure. I mean, Bratton is anything but uh, a hippie when it comes to uh, police policies. You know, he cut his teeth in the Giuliani administration, which Bill de Blasio ran most of his campaign criticizing when it comes to police policies. Then he turns around and hires, you know, one of the, the top Giuliani lieutenants from the from the era to 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 run his own uh, police department. Um, so I mean, I, I mean, uh, I'm sure Bratton is going to, you know, run things de Blasio's way, but uh, I don't think uh, de Blasio is going to be as left wing as uh, some people thought he was going to be when it comes to police and perhaps other things as well. And Bratton symbolizes that. So, what are people to make of the of the new of the transition as indicated as a uh, harbinger of government? Uh, I think people are feeling that a little slow potentially to make appointments. That's why there's been this, all this rumor mongering, and uh, also there's some some criticism that uh, the. The mayor-elect is not so available to the press, as well as being late. So, uh, <laughs> from your perspective of sitting there and trying to cover this uh, this uh, administration-elect, uh, where do you uh, where do you see things going? All right. So there's a there's a few parts to sort of uh, decompress here. Uh, on, on the overall pace of the transition, it feels really slow, but in the grand scheme of things, at least relative to past transitions. It's not especially slow. At this point in 2001, Bloomberg had only announced, I think, two picks, uh, Ray Kelly and then his uh, press spokesman. Here we have four picks already from de Blasio, so it's not that bad. And some announcements are still be coming in January, maybe even in February, so this is an elongated process. Um, as far as how open de Blasio has been with the press, I mean, that's been a, a very sudden transition. I mean, both after he won the primary, he switched from doing a gazillion events a day to like a single event a day. And now that he won the overall election, it slowed down to like one every few days. It's picked up a little bit now, but uh, as we noted uh, on our blog recently that, uh, I mean, I was, I was there today. Uh, he, he, there, there, uh, their team runs things a little bit slowly. Uh, I mean, we were sitting there for maybe 50 minutes, uh, you know, a whole room full of, you know, I don't know, three dozen reporters. And then, uh, you know, the police, AIDS and everybody there, and every every day this week it's been like over 30 minutes. So I mean, uh, they're going to have to, uh, you know, grease in the the wheels and the cogs of their machine a little bit, I think, uh, going forward. Haven't they generally been praised for running a very effective and efficient political operation? Yes, I mean, I mean, being very effective and uh, being a, a political operation is, is different from being very effective in a governmental operation, and that's something De Blasio is going to have to uh, get used to. Okay, well, let's just uh, address for a second maybe some of the challenges facing uh, Bill de Blasio. And one thing I wanted to get an idea, and I know you cover Brooklyn uh, very, very well, is his campaign, and I think it really was genius uh, when he was running in the Democratic primary, to save Long Island College Hospital. Okay, so he has essentially kept, uh, maybe uh, not single-handedly, obviously there have been other people involved, but he has kept this hospital open. But open in a sense that I think they're losing like $13 million a day mm-hmm. and has the potential to really kind of uh, have serious fiscal ramifications for, for SUNY, the, the, entire, uh, the entire institution of SUNY. And at the same time, you have the Health and Hospitals Corporation, which is teetering on financial uh, difficulties. So is, is Bill de Blasio going to be able to keep that promise of keeping hospitals open when you're keeping them to, out to the tune of huge deficits? Yeah, I don't know to what extent he made that promise because the hospitals are largely controlled by the state, and so. Well, HHC is a. Uh, I'm saying Lich is a state, but HHC is a, is city hospitals. Oh, I mean, I mean, the city does have a, a hospitals corporation, but uh, I know SUNY controls the, uh, which is a state 
uh, entity controls uh, Lich, the Long Island uh, College Hospital, and there's only so much de Blasio could do there. Um, I, I'll be very interested to see if he can keep his promises in that regard. I suspect that, uh, uh, assuming de Blasio would be able, I mean, he, I think he can use the bully pulpit to speak out against closures, but there's only so much he can do when, you, when you're talking about tens of millions of dollars being lost every month and no financial structure to you know, reverse course, as it is with some of these hospitals. Well, I guess that's the challenge of governing versus campaigning. And uh, I want to welcome to the show, we have Jacob Kornblue joining us. Uh, I think I want to bring the gang back together, Jacob and Colin. Uh, every, get, get everybody have one big uh, party talking about uh, our next topic, which is the speaker's race. And, uh, you know, not much of a race, right, in the true sense of a race, but you guys have been following very closely the machinations of the candidates looking to be Speaker of the City Council. Uh, so, Jacob, uh uh, why don't you give us an idea about you know who's up and who's down and you know what are your thoughts right now about who's going to be the next speaker? Uh, I think that it's still early to assess because uh, there was like there were like seven seven um, open public forums where the candidates basically introduced themselves to the pundits to to some voters, but the decisions lay upon the 51 members. They're the ones who are going to decide who is the next speaker, and as of now, uh, even if uh, people are talking or, or leaning towards one candidate or another, uh, it's still, you know, it's still indecisive. You could still change your mind. Uh, you know, Brooklyn and Queens might go together or not, and uh, Melissa Viverito might get uh, the black progressive vote plus the support of Mayor de Blasio, or Mayor de Blasio doesn't want somebody on the left of him. So it's still early to assess where the race is going right now. I'm sure the decision would be made towards um, the end of December. And Colin, where, where does uh, everybody says that de Blasio is going to support uh, Melissa Mark Viverito out there, but does he really want somebody on his left? I mean, that's a, that's a complicated question as well. I mean, there's a lot of uh, pundits who would say that de Blasio would not want somebody to his left that, I mean, not, not only just to his left, but he might want more personal space between him and the speaker so that, I mean, the speak, no speaker is going to challenge him on his agenda. Like, nobody's going to oppose his pre-K plan or anything like that. But, you know, uh, to the extent that the city council, you know, runs his own body, makes his own screw-ups and everything else, it sort of helps to uh, not be so intimately tied. Um, I don't know if de Blasio, uh, I certainly don't think he's going to speak out against Melissa, uh, Mark Viverito. There's a chance he might do nothing, and there's a chance he might make some uh, quiet pushes behind the scenes, but I haven't seen anything directly from him thus far. And Jacob referred to earlier this, uh, the discussion of the counties, right? So, so you have the county leaders in Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx are generally the most unified, uh, Manhattan less unified as when Staten Island, you know, only with three council members, so it's not as relevant, uh, versus the progressive caucus. Uh, so Jacob, where, where do things stand? Is that going to continue to be a struggle or the, are the county chairs who hold a lot of sway in these individual elections and smaller elections, are they going to reassert themselves a little bit more versus the, uh, versus the progressive caucus? Um. I mean, the Progressive Caucus is 20 or 21 members, and uh, you have to count out some rebels that could always, you know, defect from that block. But um, I think in terms of who is basically top tier, uh, I would look at Mark Weprin that has a strong chance uh, to unite Brooklyn and, um, and uh, Queens and might even get the approval of Mayor de Blasio. Uh, because he has no ambition to challenge anybody, he is an eight. He would be um, serving two terms, so the race wouldn't open up again in four years from now. But I think uh, Grabnik also has a strong chance to be the uh, compromise candidate. So I mean, if uh, we can talk and talk and assess who is going to be uh, the next speaker, I mean, uh, based on our analysis in January. Christine Quinn would have been mayor-elect right now. So it's still early to know because we have no idea what's going on behind the scenes or what's going to happen the week before the council reconvenes. So something particular to our listenership, and we're talking with Jacob Cornblue and Colin Campbell here about the 
something particularly is maybe the, the two orthodox members of the city council, David Greenfield and newly elected councilman-elect Chaim Deutsch, right? Not in the progressive camp, neither one of them. Where do they go? Where, do, where are they sitting right now, if you had to speculate, vis-a-vis the speaker's race? Throw that out to either of you. Um, sure. Uh, I think uh, David Greenfield tends to be a little bit more uh, aligned with the Brooklyn County organization uh, and the block of votes associated with that. Um, that's controlled by Brooklyn County leader uh, uh, Frank Sedio, who doesn't rule with an iron fist. You know, he goes out and talks to to the members who want to be loyal and vote in a block, and you know, they'll come to some consensus. Um, uh, Heim Deutsch, I've heard described as one of well, the only one or two truly true votes that don't come in any block whatsoever in uh, the entire city out of the 51 members. Him and right, he uh, wasn't supported by the county when he ran. He was uh, right, the uh, county. The county supported Ari Kagan. Ari Kagan, primary. right? Um, uh, go ahead. I, I would chime in. Uh, um, I would say if David Greenfeld would be uh, a selfish guy, which he's not, uh, he would have supported Melissa because that gives him the second powerful. I mean, I don't know if it's the most powerful position after the speaker, but a very powerful position in the leadership and uh, finance chair. You know, um, I don't think that the council is going to settle on on two white Jewish guys being in the top leadership positions. But, you know, he still has uh, um, his interest and his coalition, uh, you know, his connections with the, with the counties. In terms of Chaim Deutsch, um, I heard from numerous sources that um, Mayor-elect de Blasio met with him last week and uh, basically put forward the uh, uh, um, if, if, if you call it, uh, uh, um, just tell me what it will take to get your support for speaker, and he didn't come back with an answer yet. So, uh, as Colin mentioned, he's not, uh, uh, he wasn't supported by the county, so he's not obligated uh, to support um, um, those in the county. He's not obligated to be part of any coalition, and he might be for sale, so you would never know uh, where these two would part ways or join arms together and um, look at the interest of of whatever it means for the future of Brooklyn and Queens. Very interesting. Now let's talk about a single council member who seems to be really in the news, even though she has yet not to be uh, inaugurated, just elected, uh, Councilwoman from Crown Heights, Lori Cumbo. Uh, and uh, she has already, I, I think it's achieved national fame out there uh, through addressing the knockout game, which is uh, where the, I'm sorry, we have technical difficulties, a little feedback there on the line. Uh, the Guys, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Uh, she uh, She has blamed that on the Jewish landlords. The reason that uh, young uh, people are out there potentially knocking out older uh, older Jewish people and others, other people, uh, is because uh, they feel displaced by uh, by the Jewish landlords who are evicting them from their houses. So uh, does anybody want Lori Cumbo's vote? Well, I mean, I don't know if I it would I, – I don't know if she is like – that scandalized by that that she's uh, yeah she seems not talking. to be she said uh, she's got a lot of positive feedback I mean I mean the, the letter itself is, is somewhat you know you know there's these uh, there's certain segments that use uh, what do you call it dog whistles that you know stereotype you know Jewish landlords etc that though know, obviously that was that was very very clumsy but you know the letter itself you know if you read in this whole it's it's not really hateful per se so I mean I don't know if she's going to be hurt in the long run by this or not but we'll have to see. I mean, I, 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 I shouldn't uh, suggest that we should be offended by every remark that any uh, council member is going to make over the next four years. We are strong enough and we are um, a grown-up community that we don't really need this tension right now. However, I think she did a big mistake by, by um, basically giving out the second letter. You know, you can always apologize, but if you give out one statement and then you put out another statement that contradicts the first statement but even draws up a greater controversy, you end up um, apologizing for both, but your reputation is damaged already. So she did a mistake, but it shouldn't be us. Uh, um, our elected officials shouldn't be the one leading the fight against 
somebody that made or, or, or suggested to make a hateful comment. Leave it for the ADL, leave it up to the voters, leave it up to the uh, community members, and let, uh, let, let's just focus on how to bring resources for the community. That, that, that would, would be my advice for those looking for headlines. There's enough headlines to make over the next four years if our elected officials would focus on bringing resources back to their districts, and that should be our main focus, not looking to divide between communities. Well, who can disagree with that? Well, uh, certainly, I think... It, I was just wondering if Lori Combo is looking to potentially take the Charles Barron spot within the council. I don't think... I mean, uh, you know, I interviewed her when I first heard that her uh, campaign... I mean, that she was going to run for the city council, and I've also followed her trajectory. She's not really that sort of rhetorical bomb thrower. If anybody's going to take Charles Barron's spot, it's going to be Inez Barron his wife, who just won his council seat. Right. Well, I, you know, there's always competition for that spot. So, uh, but no, I, I understand I understand where you're going with that one. Absolutely. So let, let's just, uh, and I think we're almost out of time with this segment. I just want to, uh, I guess, look at this uh, la- one last issue within the, within the dynamic, and we discussed this on the first segment of the show, is the tension that's going to happen or potentially might happen between de Blasio, Governor Cuomo, and the third piece of that, the city council, uh, if the city council would, would seem to be even more uh, progressive, I think that's the right word, uh, than, than the mayor himself, who is more progressive than the governor. And how will that dynamic play out, as you see, over this, over this year within the Democratic Party and New York? Colin. Uh, sure. The centerpiece of Bill de Blasio's uh, agenda that he campaigned on was something that he actually cannot just do on his own, is this uh, tax on the rich in the city in order to fund uh, universal pre-K and some after-school programs. But uh, the way the, the structure is set up of the, of the government is that uh, New York City can't raise income taxes on its own. It needs Albany to approve it. And the Republicans that uh, control the state Senate, along with a couple of Democrats, are very, very strongly opposed to any tax increase. And Governor Cuomo has generally been very strongly against it and has said it's an election year next year. He wants to lower taxes next year. So it's going to be very difficult to, uh, you know, make those two visions come together. It's possible that uh, there will be a compromise like uh, an alternate funding stream found to fund the universal pre-K because, you know, there's billions and billions of dollars in the state budget. You can find the money somewhere if you really want to. And Jacob, just to put a last question out to you, where does does Bill de Blasio fulfill his uh, or his, his rumored campaign promise with regard to Matitsa Vapet? Uh, I mean, this is already a sued issue. I mean, we discussed it already so many times, and I don't think that uh, de Blasio would pull out uh, a, a magic uh, wound and just solve the problem. I think it's up to the courts and uh, based well, on he, the conversations he, he could choose that I not had to, uh, with, uh, with he... the leaders of Agudas Israel, uh, they met yesterday with their legal team and they expressed off the record, of course, uh, uh, some uh, cautious optimism in, in, in laying forward their case and which the um, appeals court might overturn the mayor's regulation. So I think we are looking at that, and then if the Blasio sees that uh, that would not bring a breakthrough to this issue, he would seek to look some compromise. Maybe even he, he already suggested some compromise when he was ahead in the polls and the leaders were, like, reluctant to uh, challenge him on that. And, you know, he met numerous times with leaders in the community, uh, which was not disclosed. So we have no idea what he came up and oh, what he promised them, but I think uh, we should uh, first look at the Blasio establishing himself uh, in the office and put forward his agenda, and we'll all see uh, where it goes from there. Okay, Jacob Cornblue and Colin Campbell, thank you for joining us here on Spin Class, and uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Fantastic. This is Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, jmtheam.org, and we are proud, as always, to be sponsored by Beckerman, Beckerman Public Relations, Beckerman Public Affairs, BeckermanPR.com, and if you want to tell your story, do it with Beckerman. 
And uh, we are going to transition now to our, our last piece, you know, as we do try and throw a little Israel, a little international out there. And we are really privileged to have one of the one of the astute observers of Washington, certainly from a Jewish perspective and from an Israel perspective, Ron Campius. Did I get that right, Ron? I apologize. You did. Thank okay, you. Okay, fantastic. Uh, Ron Campius of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the JTA. And if you are not following Ron, you should be doing so on a daily basis if you want to get the latest of what is transpiring as it affects the events in the Holy Land and the Middle East. Ron, thanks for coming on Spin Class. No, thank you. So, Ron, we have potentially uh, some daylight. You know, we always say there's no daylight between the the U.S. and Israel uh, on foreign policy, particularly when it comes to Iran. But that does not seem to be the case anymore. There seems to be a divergence of views, particularly between Obama and Bibi Netanyahu. Yes, uh, for sure. On Iran, the, there there is a divergence of views. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu is very unhappy with the interim agreement because. Uh, his perception is that it uh, gives up a lot in terms of even uh, opening the the, the sanctions uh, box <clears throat> for 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 very little. Um, and in in the end game, there also there's looks like there's also going to be a disagreement because Israel uh, wants as part of a final deal that Iran completely dismantle any uh, any enrichment capacity that it it not be able to enrich uranium, and that means no centrifuges. No, no, uh, no enrichment and, uh, the removal of, uh, uranium that's already been, been enriched. And the United States has already said that the likelihood is that there will be a, a low enrichment capacity for Iran. So yeah, there, there is daylight for sure. So we have a new ambassador after quite a few years, uh, the, of the high profile Michael Oren. We have potentially an even higher profile Ron Dermer coming into Washington as the new U.S. Amba- uh, Israel amba- Israeli ambassador to the U.S. And Ron Dermer is a former Republican political operative. Uh, it's certainly, uh, I don't think you ever shake that label as a former Republican political operative myself. Uh, so I think that, uh, how does that play out in somebody who really is there to deal with the the uh, head of state, which is the executive branch, as opposed to dealing with Republicans in Congress. Uh, how how will that dynamic shake out? And I think you, you wrote a really great piece in uh, in Politico this week about it. So you know, maybe just give the audience a little taste of what they may have missed or not read yet. Well, to be fair to Dermer, you know, his his uh, official Republican capacity lasted about a year when he was still a young man, just out of the university, out of the out of uh, University of Pennsylvania. He came to Washington. He worked for. Frank Luntz, who was a Republican pollster and who had been his professor at the uh, at UPenn, uh, and helped him shape the the language that went into the contract for America then, which helped return a, a Republican majority to the House of Representatives after decades. And that was a long time ago. And immediately after that, he he was already interested in going to Israel. He was on his way to Oxford to do grad studies. And while he was in Oxford, he started traveling to Israel, and he became I think he became much more passionate a Zionist than he ever was a, a Republican. Uh, and the the reputation he has to overcome is more during his uh, his capacity as a as a top aide to uh, Netanyahu over the last five years when he was seen as uh, as the person who uh, who who would make the most aggressive pronouncements in terms of disagreements between the United States and Israel and he was seen as somebody who was uh, was friendlier to uh, Republicans and that you know that might have become. That might not have been entirely his fault because Republicans would seek him out. So, for instance, when uh, Romney's, Mitt Romney's top uh, Jewish advisor, Dan Senor, came to Israel a couple of years ago, he sought uh, Ron Dermer out to help him uh, plan a Romney's trip to, uh, tri- to, to Israel. It wasn't something that Dermer himself uh, initiated. But, uh, there, but, you know, fair or not, and a lot of it is probably unfair, he has that perception in the White House of being the guy who stirred the most trouble, and he has to overcome it. And so far, he's actually doing a good job. He's really uh, conveying the idea there are people within the, you know, there, there are people in the Democratic establishment who already think that, you know, he, he's overcoming that. It's on to the next stage. That's behind him. So he, he will be a professional. He was a professional, will continue to be a professional. He knows the boundaries between the political and the... Uh, the political and the professional or the diplomatic, I guess that's the word I was searching for. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's already being perceived as a professional. He's you know he's somebody who 
who represents a government that has very strong views, particularly on the Iran issue, and he has very strong views himself, and he will put those views out. But he's not going to do it in any way that, uh, any personal way, obviously, that targets President Obama. He's very respectable of the president, and he even says that it, uh, in, a, in, a, in a number of ways, you know, the, he, the president and Netanyahu have an excellent relationship. He gives the president high marks for, for what he says is recognizing Israel's right to defend itself by itself. Uh, and he points out, for instance, last year's little uh, conflagration with Gaza exactly about a year ago, where the, uh, the president stood completely behind Israel. There is this perception out there, I think, particularly in the media, and not to you know, point any fingers, uh, but uh, certainly in the mainstream media, that Bibi is looking to cultivate or triangulate against the president with House Republicans, right? He came famously to give an address before the Congress uh, when he was upset with Obama, uh, I think two years ago at this point. And, you know, there if if he doesn't like what's going on in the administration, he's going to go to Congress to hopefully get his way. And I think there are some Republicans or uh, there are some Republicans out there, maybe even some Democrats in Congress who want to be more perceived as being more pro-Israel, more right-wing than the president is or uh, wants to be. So they might encourage that. And how much is that How much is that real? How much is that just perception? How much is that being manufactured? Uh, well, a lot of it is perception, I think. I mean, and a lot of it is, is, you know, when two parties, two entities end up on the opposite sides of an argument, they tend to, uh, one, each side tends to concoct conspiracies uh, on the other side and there are democrats in congress who uh who see a, a degree of uh partisanship and they've actually been straight they've you know adam schiff a democrat of california has has asked uh, dermer to address this question specifically they don't see it as dermer's problem so much as as the netanyahu government's uh, problem but they but they do see it and they are uh, they are concerned about it i mean it's it's a fine line i mean israel has to represent its interests in the united states the Israeli ambassador is not like any other ambassador in Congress. The Congress people are always inviting him up to the Hill. They go up to ambassadors, and it's not just Dermer, it's Oren, it's everybody who was before him going back, at least to Yitzhak Rabin when he was ambassador in the late 60s and early 70s. They're always consulting with Congress. And, uh, you know, and the trick for them, and it's, uh, it's, it's they, have, they do it in a way that makes it clear that they're, they're presenting their position. They're not necessarily attacking the position Coming from the administration, it's a fine line they have to walk, and uh, and they're and you know and sometimes they're going to be perceived as uh, as as crossing over, as advocating against the administration. But on the other hand, what, what can they do? They they're if they're asked to, to present their their position on a certain issue, they're going to present their position. We're talking to Ron Campias from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, JTA.org. Uh, Ron, what's your Twitter handle for the audience? It's just a Campius, K-A-M-P-E-A-S. Okay, and uh, you should certainly follow him on Twitter. Where uh, this is a spin class, and we're sponsored by Beckerman. And just winding down uh, another Thursday night. Let's uh, let's just discuss for a second you know, the the outcomes or potential outcomes of the Iran situation. I think that that is a you know as Netanyahu likes to say, this is an existential issue for Israel, right? I mean, you can debate it, we can talk about the world capitals, but in the end, Iran it comes down to an existential issue for for Israel. And uh, you know, where where can we see you know things going? Uh, you know, six months down the line with uh, with this deal, uh, does this deal become successful? Is it going to be undermined? You know, where does it go? And given all the dynamics in the region. You know, in the power play versus Iran and Saudi Arabia that's playing out both in Syria and in Lebanon. You know, where you know where do things go? I mean, if you're Israel, do you really are you really just saying, oh, you know, they just the 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 West just doesn't understand the region or the neighborhood? Well, yeah, I think the, if you're Israel, you're not so much saying that the West doesn't understand it, but they are saying, you know, you're Israel, you're saying, you know, we're we're 20 minutes flight from Iran, we're not like an ocean away. We have to. Uh, we have different considerations that the West doesn't have, and maybe the West understands, but it doesn't feel it the way that, that we do. I mean, I think where we go, first of all, we have to see if the, the negotiations over these six months succeed. I mean, there is the momentum of willingness on all sides. The Iranians want the, you know, they're going in, they want the negotiations to see the United States, all the, uh, the P5 plus one, the Europeans, the Russians, uh, the, the Chinese, everybody wants the negotiations to see, but there still are very, very wide gaps. 
gaps. If you talk to administration officials off the record, and today Robert Einhorn, who was a former nuclear negotiator, he gave a long talk at the American Jewish Committee. Uh, you know, there are he, the way he put it is that there are four Israeli no's: no enrichment, no centrifuges, no Fordo, which is the uh, major underground uh, enrichment facility, and no Iraq, which is the plutonium uh, manufacturing facility. And actually, the U.S. doesn't agree on two of those issues. It does agree on Fordo and uh, and Iraq on the plutonium. They do, they they want to see a complete dismantling of those facilities. And the the Iranians have invested billions of dollars into those facilities. And actually, shutting down Fordo, closing it, you know, dismantling everything that went into that cave, that mountain, and then shutting down Iraq, ending any kind of plutonium capacity. That would be a hard blow for the Iranians, so who knows if they're even going to come to an agreement. In six months from now, we might be exactly where we were. We might be uh, seeing, like, tough, tougher sanctions. On the other hand, you know, if there is an advancing towards an agreement, uh, where it goes from there depends on the degree to which the, uh, the West, I think, can persuade not just Israel, but Israel, Saudi Arabia, Gulf countries, that, uh, that the uh, Iranian capacity has been inhibited. I don't think Israel and the, and, and the Saudis are going to be ever entirely happy if Iran has any kind of uh, enrichment capacity coming out of this, but they, they might be placated to the extent that, uh, that we're not going to, uh, that, that things will calm down there for the next few years. Yeah, we just had a, well, there's always, there's always flare-ups and the like out there, but uh, we just had a major... Uh, well, I, I guess I'll just say it. an assassination, right, of a major Hezbollah figure in Lebanon. Okay, and some are attributing that to Israel, and some are attributing that to Saudi Arabia, and you know it's unclear as to where as to where that goes and what that le- what that leads to. But there's, you know, at the same time we're kind of discussing this uh, potential for weapons of mass destruct- destruction. There's all kinds of conventional war going on out there at the same time. Right. And uh, it, it, doesn't that really just muddy this entire situation? You know that there's kind of active warfare going on, and you know clearly, you know, Iran is involved, given its you know proxy of Hezbollah. Yeah, I mean, this is like, uh, I mean, that's the other thing to watch in six months. If this nuclear thing actually does advance, if it if it defeats the odds, and there really is some kind of nuclear deal in the offing, that doesn't go away. The fact that Iran is this implacable uh, enemy of Israel, self defined enemy of Israel. It's not that Israel wants Iran to be an enemy, that it, uh, it, uh, it has repeatedly used terrorism abroad, not just in its neighborhood, to advance its interests. And, you know, one of the things that the Israelis and the Saudis and others are going to be watching coming out of this deal is whether Iran uses the quiet created by a nuclear deal to uh, advance its hegemony in other countries, whether, uh, you, you know, it, uh, it's this helps Iran in terms of strengthening Hezbollah in Lebanon, in, in terms of uh, basically um, consolidating the grip that Hezbollah has on that country, whether this helps Iran in terms of helping to keep in power Bashar Assad in, uh, in Syria. Everybody's going to be uh, watching that. Things, this, yeah, this nuclear thing is not a panacea. Things don't, don't go, bad things don't go away, even if there is a deal, that's for sure. And how would you, you know, just the last question for you as, as we wind out the hour, and there's just so much to talk about, so we're going to have to, you know, we'll have to extend this to another show, Ron. I appreciate your time. Uh, how would you rate John Kerry so far? I think there was a lot of apprehension, uh, certainly in the pro-Israel community around John Kerry, not necessarily as much as around Chuck Agle, but uh, right. there was some apprehension around John Kerry. But this seems to be his dream job, and how's he doing so far? You know, if you look at him in terms of, it's, it's always good to judge people by, to judge politicians and statesmen by what their own agenda is. And he's doing great as far as that's concerned. He's got the Israelis and the Palestinians back to the table. He's got the Iranians at the, at the table. He's got the Iranians at the table on, on American terms. And, you know, from an Israeli point of view, from a pro-Israel point of view, have yet, yet to see, uh, you know, to what degree are the Americans going to be listening to Israel during the next six months uh, as this uh, Iran deal goes forward? Uh, to what degree are the Americans going to be taking Israeli concerns into account uh, if the Israeli-Palestinian talks come to uh, to get come to any kind of fruition, and they start looking to the Americans for bridging proposals, to what degree are those going to take uh, long-standing Israeli security ter- uh, interests into account? So uh, we we don't know yet as far as that goes. 
Okay, well, certainly I think if it comes to actually uh, promoting himself and not certainly being a shadow, and I don't mean that in a bad way, all politicians want to promote themselves, not being a shadow to his predecessor, who was the high-profile Hillary Clinton, uh, John Kerry's doing a fantastic job. Uh, so uh, certainly he is. Uh, certainly he's out there. So Ron Campias from JTA, thank you for joining us here on Spin Class. Thank you. And hope right. to continue the conversation. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. This is Spin Class. We're talking politics. Another hour done. And uh, we are here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, jmintheam.org. And stay tuned for another Thursday night here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Have a good night. Mm-hmm.